Welcome to season two of the Coalition for Disabilities Talk and Disability podcast. Season one was titled Queering Ability. This season is titled Including Ability. I'm Sarah Shopper, and I currently serve as the research coordinator for the Coalition for Disability within ACPA Student Educators International. Today, I'll be talking about Chapter 7, Providing Accessible Professional Development with Special Guests, Richard Allegra, Director of Information and Outreach at the Association on Higher Education and Disability, Tara Buchanan, Director of Disability Resources at the University of Memphis, and Marcel Jones, Care Manager and Community Health Worker. Let's get started. If you listen to the first six episodes of the season, you already know that this season's episodes are all about the monograph published at the end of 2021 titled Creating Inclusivity While Providing Accommodations, a practical guide to champion individuals with disabilities on campus. You can find this publication for free at myacpa.org and I'll provide the link to it in the notes of this podcast. The three authors of chapter seven are our guests today. Chapter seven talks about accessible professional development. Richard, Tara, and Marcel, welcome to the podcast. I'm so thankful you were able to join us for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. As you know, I've already shared with our listeners the topic of our discussion today. Let's start with each of you sharing with our listeners a bit about why you decided to contribute to this chapter. Richard, let's start with you. Okay. Um, well, um, some... ACPA members are also members of the head. And uh, I was involved with the coalition and went to a, at least one or two um, conferences or conventions there and uh, engaged with the coalition. So I was really um, happy to do that. And uh, my work at that time was developing and managing professional development activities for a head members. So it was a, a good uh, connection. And I was happy to share my experience of doing this kind of work over all these years and give some guidance to how to create accessible and uh, welcoming learning environments for people who put on events or professional development. It's a great opportunity to do it. Thank you. Tara, how about you? So for me, um, I think this is such an important topic and it often gets overlooked because you know, even if we have good intentions, um, it's just not the way that we've been taught to design our uh, learning opportunities. And I, that's not going to change unless um, we, we design a roadmap, right, to improve these practices. And it just becomes the way that people do things um, rather than thinking of accessibility as a separate sort of thing you have to do that it is just becomes best practice for designing any learning opportunities. Excellent, and Marcel? Similar to Tara, um, when I first started in this profession, professional development was not always supported or encouraged. Um, it was often overlooked by the powers that be that had the funding to do that professional development or making things accessible, if you will. So I found that I was, always trying to convince um, other departments um, that professional development, accessibility, whatever we're trying to relate that to at any given time was always important beyond my door of disability services. It's everybody's responsibility. And so 
I thought it was very important to make that emphasis uh, throughout the chapter and, and everybody did a really good job of that. Yes, I agree. I think that um, there have been from folks I've shared the chapter with many aha moments for mm. folks doing professional development, ironically oh. or not related to being oh. inclusive. And they've read the chapter and thought, I had not thought about making it accessible, but the topic or the goal of that they're trying to help people learn about is how to be more inclusive. And so it's been many light bulb moments I've experienced with folks who have fabulous intentions and are trying really hard to broaden people's knowledge base related to an important topic, especially connected to furthering one's education. And they're unknowingly being exclusive. And so your chapter has been very helpful that way. It's within the monograph, which you heard me mention when I introduced you all. And I'm curious now if you could share a little bit about how you learned about the Coalition for Disability monograph. Tara, why don't you get us started? So um, I, I learned about it from you, Sarah. I believe that uh, this opportunity was presented to me because of our past collaboration uh, when you and I were both at Western Illinois University. We both participated in a, a program called Faculty Partnerships for Accessible Solutions, uh, which was a professional development that was all about universal design. And so um, you actually touched on this just a minute ago, but I don't really think you can teach about universal design without being intentional about access and inclusion, right? So as you know, um, the co-facilitators and I uh, really tried to be an example of what we were teaching in that program. Mm -hmm. Yes, and Marcel? I actually learned about the coalition through Richard once he invited me to collaborate on this project. So I am still learning a lot about what they do uh, and behind the scenes, et cetera. So I'm hoping to get even more involved, but for now I was happy to be able to contribute to it. Wonderful, and that brings us to Richard. How'd you hear about the monograph? Well, in similar ways, um, I uh, heard the idea floated at uh, one of the coalition meetings, I believe, maybe it was Spencer Scruggs who uh, told me that this was in the works or, uh, and then through you and uh, Amy, I thought it was a great opportunity for us to share our experiences. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit more about those experiences. Specifically, if you could share with us any experiences that you've had related to the chapter's topic. So whatever you're comfortable sharing. And Marcel, I'll have you get us started for this question. I thought long and hard on this question. Um, and in my background, and, and when I was in higher education and working in the disability role, I had to write a lot of proposals and convince the upper administration that accessibility overall was important, but especially for my own professional development. And it took a lot of effort and a lot of time and energy and to convince them that going to a head conferences, going to webinars, whether they were virtual or uh, in person or going to different trainings. And so at that level of trying to do your job at the same time of not having necessarily what you needed in your back pocket for that accessibility and professional development, um, it, it just, it uh, was an uphill battle at times. So I, this topic was very near and dear to me because I had to fight for my own professional development in order to educate other people about it. And we're only as best as what we're taught. 
So that that was very important to me as, as I was going through and, and writing the chapter, my portion. Yes. Thank you. And I appreciate your honesty with that. I think there'll probably be a lot of listeners who would classify the energy they put into acquiring professional development as feeling like a fight or having to push people. So some of those more direct or aggressive, um, convincing, you know, roles that you have to play sometimes to help people understand how to be, you can be best successful at your job in order to help the institution. Tara, how about you? So my journey with uh, this topic of access, inclusion, and universal design really started back in 2008 when I participated in um, something called Project Shift. This is when I really started to even, you know, to learn a little bit more about universal design and the idea of planning ahead for diversity. And I've just tried to continue that journey and to question my own practices. Um, And I guess I feel like I've experienced this journey from both sides, right? At, both as a learner um, and as a presenter. And so um, you you see what other people do that was really fantastic and you try to implement that and, um, you know, into what you're doing, so. What was Project Shift? Uh, Project Shift, and I'm not gonna remember exactly what SHIP, SHIFT stands for, uh, shaping, Inclusion through transformational. I'm sorry, I'm not going to be okay. that question. But um, uh, do you know what it, what the name of it was, Richard? What it stood for? Yeah, I might have been higher. No, I can't remember, but I remember. I, I remember Project Shift. <laughs> yeah, Shift stand. Shift is actually an acronym for something. Okay. Um, and it is shaping inclusion, and I don't know what the F and T stand for. Um, But anyway, it was really about getting um, disability service providers in higher education to um, start thinking more broadly than just accommodations. Um, At that time, I think we were, you know, very much gatekeepers, many of us, Some of us not, but many of us very much gatekeepers um, working from a medical model. Um, And this was really about thinking differently about disability, um, seeing the environment as the problem that needed changing, not the person, and and planning ahead for um, people with disabilities because, you know, I mean, if we're going to say that we want to attract diverse populations, we have to think about disability in that too. And so this was really a very eye-opening program for me. It sounds like it. And no worries. It wasn't a quiz on the acronyms. (laughs) So it was just, I was, I had not heard it come up yet. And so I thought perhaps me and your listeners would want to know a little bit more about what it was. So thank you for sharing what you did share about it. That's helpful, I think. And Richard, how about you? If you could share with us a little bit about your experience with the chapter's topic. Yeah, well, as mentioned, I I was the professional development director for AHEAD uh, from 2003 to around 2015. Um, And my job was putting on national conferences, workshops, online events, uh, well, not webinars at that time, <laughs> but um, you know, um, audio conferences and things. 
And then prior to that, I'd been directing uh, disability services or disability resources at uh, several universities and often provided training to faculty and staff. Um, and even before that, in my work in disability, uh, I was always committed to uh, finding um, uh, the best information to help uh, others in their work um, and also to um, anticipate what people uh, need to learn. So uh, through a head, um, uh, ACPA, I'm sure it's the same way. You get a lot of questions, you know, what do you do about this? And also after the passage of ADA and uh, some of the um, different laws around accessible technology, all those, you get a lot of questions, you know, uh, what do I need to be doing X, Y, Z, which you can answer, but at the same time, you also need to teach people what they actually really need to know uh, beyond kind of a minimum. And I think that's kind of like what this project shift that Tara was involved in. I remember when the people who um, put that on uh, offered that. So um, I've been committed to um, getting the word out about disability, about uh, civil rights laws, all those kinds of things, universal design, and, and ensuring that people get um, accurate information. And, um, and especially with uh, college administrators, you know, getting them on board with this, that it's beyond just meeting some minimum. So it's been uh, an interesting and a very fulfilling career doing this. <laughs> Perfect. That's a great segue into my next question, which I will um, ask you to get us started with, Richard. And if you could talk a little bit about how it was beneficial for you to participate in this experience. Well, it was good um, to really sit down. And I think this was the first time I ever had an opportunity to just sit down and kind of think about what are the essentials. And, and especially because it was uh, ACPA and not my usual ahead audience, many of whom know some of this stuff. Uh, and just think about ACPA, think about some of the members there uh, who may be unfamiliar with this, is how to consolidate our, our, our body of knowledge and practice into a succinct and kind of usable um, format. So that was um, uh, really beneficial, I hope, to the reader, but also was beneficial to me to kind of encapsulate this. I was really happy to participate on it and also to uh, talk with people who worked on the other chapters of the book and see that larger picture. Sure. It's great to be able to contribute to that. Thank you. Tara, how about you? So I think that anytime you set out to write about something, you discover something new or some way that you can improve your own approach. Um, and so I think that was a, a real benefit for me to just. Um, just kind of see the things I may be doing well, but see what other things I might need to work on a little bit. Um, and then of course, I, I had heard of Richard and he, you know, he's very well-known and well-respected and I had to jump at the chance to collaborate with him. And I knew Marcel and I knew she was very knowledgeable about online learning. And I got to find out she was such a great writer too. So it was just really nice collaborating with the two of them. Excellent. And Marcel, how about you? Similar to Tara, um, and not only allowed me to collaborate with two wonderful people, I really enjoyed that process, 
but I learned a lot about different ideas that were out there at the particular time and the different approaches and the deep research that we all had to do to put together our portions of this. So it was really difficult to choose for me what kind of information to include because by the time I was done, I had so much. And I was like, okay, what's really pertinent? So I had to stop and think about that, but it was a great process. Yes, well, and I I would like to put out there that for our listeners, that each of the chapters, if this is the first time you've joined us and you have not checked out the monograph yet, or if this is the only chapter you've checked out in the monograph, you'll see that the chapter has resources that they recommend for continued learning because not everything could be put into all the chapters. And so I highly encourage you to check out those resources and to connect with the entire monograph to look at all the chapters and the resources within it. You'll find the full citations within that document. And so hopefully that's easy for you to be able to use so that you can continue on in your own learning related to this topic for all of the different content areas recognized in the chapters. Let's get to know each of our authors a little bit better. I'm going to have them share with us a little bit about their educational background and then three words used to describe themselves. They get to pick those three words. And I'm going to ask Tara if she'll get us started. So I have an undergraduate degree in kinesiology and a master's degree in rehabilitation administration and services, um, both from Southern Illinois University at Carbondale. Um, and the three words I chose for myself were advocate, collaborative, and teachable. Thank you. And Marcel? Uh, I have a, an associate's degree from Southwestern Michigan College in Social Work. And then I earned two degrees from Grand Valley State University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, one is in health communications and the other is in communications with the emphasis in basically health promotion, mental health. Uh, and then three words that would describe me, resilient, problem solver, and um, I don't know, I've thought a lot about this, probably public speaking is a strength of mine that most people know about me, so. Thank you, wonderful. And Richard, how about you? Um, well, it's interesting, uh, just looking back, uh, and especially uh, with the uh, death of uh, Judith Human just a couple days ago, I was thinking back and I remember I was a kid living in um, San Francisco Bay Area and I remember seeing on TV the 504 sit-in I, I, uh, and I knew very little about disability except for you know very traditional things you might see on TV <laughs> so but that just seeing that on on television and the news it's like that kind of changed uh, my perspective and I've been in the field of disability since the 1980s I have a rehabilitation counseling masters. And some of my first work was with um, deaf and disabled um, refugees and immigrants uh, to the US. And I uh, segued into higher education uh, just on the cusp of the ADA coming in. It was 1989 when I started at University of Minnesota and with working with a fantastic group of uh, people um, and having ADA suddenly on the scene, trying to figure out now what are we gonna do? What? So it was wonderful to work with them and kind of create um, a lot of the practices that we do, uh, that are common today, it's kind of interesting to see. Uh, I did a lot of work at that time on um, assistive technology, especially around um, 
uh, books in alternate format and remember um, the early um, very uh, <laughs> basic technologies to put a book into Braille or something. So uh, it's fantastic to see how, how all that has changed over the decades. And then with a head, you know, as I mentioned, I've been with them since 2003. And um, it's been wonderful to um, work in this national and, and sometimes international platform. And more, more recently, I've been working um, part-time with a head and part-time for a Department of Education grant uh, for the National Center for College Students with Disabilities. And there I'm able to work um, with students and families in addition to higher ed uh, folks. So kind of a kind of a full circle. So yeah. in the th three words, um, I'd say inquisitive, uh, creative, and um, this is a hyphenated word, big picture. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. It'll count as one then because it has yeah. the hyphenated. So. Right. And Marcel, let's start with your response first to this next question. If you could wish anyone to know the information in your chapter, who would it be and why? Oh, I thought again, long and hard on this one. Uh, upper administration, supervisors, uh, instructional designers, IT, stakeholders of all levels, and faculty is a must. Um, they're all really great partners in our mission, but yet may not always realize the impact that their decisions have. Again, in our roles, like I mentioned earlier, so there's a lot of barriers that most of us have had to jump through at one point or another in our careers, I'm sure, to be able to design that accessible document for professional development, whether it's for a large group of people or a small group of constituents somewhere. So uh, that that was what came to mind when I thought about this and, and my writing focus or who the audience was, were those people all encompassing, so. Wonderful, yeah, many of whom this might be their first introduction to this topic, mm -hmm. especially as it relates to professional development. So I appreciate knowing that that's what you kept in mind as you all were working on this piece. Richard, how about you? Who would you wish to know the information in this chapter? I'm just echoing what Marcel said, because <laughs> we do need the um, administrators to support the efforts, especially uh, because um, this kind of work actually needs to be done by the entire campus. So um, any buy-in is really important. <clears throat> but just as we're, I'm thinking right now, it, it'd be great to share this book and, and this chapter um, with uh, students too, just to get um, their take on things. You know, it's, it's always good to um, check in with uh, the people you're talking about. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's the, um, quote, uh, nothing about us without us. So involving students and get, always getting their uh, perceptions, I think would be important. Yeah, certainly. I agree. Tara, how about you? So I just said anyone with the power to influence the design of professional development, particularly in higher education, but, you know, I mean, the private sector too, because certainly they do professional development in every industry, right? Yeah. Oh, most certainly. In fact, actually, um, with what you just said in terms of anybody willing or interested in influencing professional development, I feel like that makes a larger argument for what Richard said about students, because 
they're at some point in time potentially going to be those folks designing professional development stuff, if you will. And can then, if it becomes the norm, like was spoken about earlier, then it just becomes what's done. So, and I heard that several of you kind of mentioned that. And that actually makes me um, curious about something that's not in, for our listeners to know, I shared with our authors the questions I was going to ask for our conversation today ahead of time, but I'm going to divert a little bit now and see if any of them could offer an example of through their professional career, something that was maybe not seen as the norm early, much earlier, and is today now seen more as a norm for that has opened the door to accessibility for folks with disabilities. So something that we do, and it could be professional development rate related. It could be just related to learning in general or our society in general, so that our listeners can hear that these things are possible if you start to do them. And maybe, maybe it's not society-wide or worldwide that you can think of, but maybe you could think of an example at an institution or a common practice that you have in your own office that you've seen kind of become a part of the daily routine that you know is having the benefit of providing that accessibility for the learning of those who enter that space. So, and I'll just open it up to any of you who might be able to share. No pressure. <laughs> so, so when you were talking, I was thinking certainly voice to text is one thing that, um, you know, many people use today. Um, and, and also text to voice, because I know that, um, that it's, it's way more common now to get an audio book or to get a book that can be read aloud by a, um, you know, a computerized voice, right? Um, but I use, my, uh, I use my voice to text on my phone all the time. Thank you. Yes. I think that sometimes maybe our listeners might not be aware of how some of what potentially is seen as has always been here. It's not always been here. So right. Richard, Marcel, do you have anything you'd add? Just thinking to actually just this morning and actually it's going on right now. Um, Microsoft is having its online conference, I guess, about accessibility. <laughs> And they're using this fantastic platform. But um, uh, just one thing, captioning has become so um, common now. I remember the early captioning, I think Love Boat was the first show to be captioned <laughs> way back in the 70s. Um, and now it's become just uh, ubiquitous. I mean, you go to a, um, like a sports bar and, and the games are on there and they're all captioned. I think about that. Actually, that's live captioning. Some captioners sitting there typing out a football game or soccer game. Just, just amazing to think of. But um, and now uh, through Zoom and other things with built-in captioning and um, AI, it's not a hundred percent perfect, but um, just that concept that that's built in. Um, so that I mean, at a very kind of minimum, if you're doing something online, especially, uh, you know, think about captioning. Uh, of your event. Yeah, I know. I keep the captions on anytime, whether it's on my computer screen or on my television, I always have them on now. And so it's become the norm for me 
And I do notice when I go places like what you were saying, and they have a television on, but they don't have the captioning on. It is frustrating to me because first of all, usually it's not quiet in that place. So, um, and they have the TV on. I'm like, I don't know what you're hoping anyone is getting, but um, I find I get so much more in, insight into what I'm watching. And I don't need to have it on, um, but I like it. So, yeah. you know, it's something that, that helps all of us out. Marcel, did you so have did anything you, you wanted to add? As about 10 years ago, uh, making testing materials accessible was at least in where I was at was difficult because I it was a small school did not have the resources to do that I had to think very outside the box of one particular test and that was a truck driving CDL qualifying test all kinds of charts and mechanical parts and all of those things uh, and I can't remember the particular disability at the time but uh, having to work with multiple people across campus to get that test accessible so he could take it down at the BMV and and hopefully pass it. It took him a couple times, but uh, I believe that he was successful in the end. So that was kind of just for me, at least in the profession, that was a, a whole new stair stepping of trying to figure out what an accessible test even looks like, whether it's biology, math, or you know, truck driving school. So that that was an adventure. That it, I learned a lot. Yeah, it sounds like it for sure. Let's visit the chapter a little bit for now. Um, I asked each of our guests today to identify a passage in the chapter they found meaningful. And I'm gonna ask each of them to read that passage they selected out loud for us. And when they do, I will have them skip over any references. I mentioned earlier that you can find those references, citations in the monograph. That's where I'm gonna encourage you to go to check for those so that you can get the full citation and go to the actual documents. Also, I think it just helps with ease of understanding what we're being read aloud. So I'll ask Richard if he'll share with us um, his passage that he chose. And for those of you listening along, I believe, and Richard, correct me, please, if I'm wrong, that you can find it on page 51. Yeah, that's right. This is at the pretty much the beginning of the chapter uh, under a heading called Planning for Inclusion. Knowledge of accessibility principles and the lived experience of people with disabilities are important to consider for all aspects of professional development, beginning with the planning stage. Uh, professional development teams need to familiarize themselves with accessibility standards and universal design principles and include members or consultants who are persons with disabilities, representatives of organizations or campus offices such as a campus disability resource center. Furthermore, as discussed below in the section on online learning, accessibility ought to be viewed as a responsibility of the entire institution and incorporated into all aspects of the teaching and learning environment from design to delivery. That um, kind of speaks for itself, but it's, um, uh, kind of represents my own philosophy, just as we've been talking about, and um, the, so, some of the best practices around accessibility. Um, the, but the planning is really key. Um, and as we touched on earlier, um, 
traditionally people who put on events may think of something like a sign language interpreter or um, the, the handouts in alternate formats after the fact. And um, there's often at events or classes um, uh, a scramble to get those things done, if, if they're done at all, you know, they may not be done, which is a problem. So um, in our uh, chapter and in our work, we really encourage planning. And a key, especially for like an event, you know, like a campus event, is incorporating that into your budget. And I, I know in the chapter, I believe we have a section there on the budget. Um, because uh, sign language interpreting is a cost, it's not a free thing, uh, but also converting uh, materials into other formats might uh, incur costs. You might need some equipment, assistive technology. So um, rather than uh, waiting uh, after the fact, even if somebody requests it, <laughs> you really do need to be thinking ahead. And then and, and speaking of ahead, um, that's something we do in our planning of our conferences, and we build in that cost a little bit into the registration. So, you know, adding a few dollars, then using that to pay for interpreters. Um, so it's just, once you start doing that, it just becomes part of the furniture. It's part of the thing that you do. And it isn't such a huge um, burden. Uh, the other piece too, also, um, uh, at, at least on a campus, um, you need to share in the costs. It's not all on the Disability Resource Center. So if uh, a unit is putting on a, an event, they really need to be um, kicking in uh, the, those costs. But the Disability Office can help find interpreters so you can collaborate with them but the unit really should be um, just as they would for anything else, rental, food, all the other things. They need to really just build that in. So that's that's um, one takeaway from this uh, section from our chapter. Wonderful. Thank you. And I certainly hear in what you're um, speaking about the importance of collaboration and working with others. So rather than just be siloed or causing any sort of um, accessibility response to be siloed. So thank you. And Tara, how about you? I think the passage you found meaningful is found on pages 57 to 58. How about if you read it for us and talk to us about why you selected it to highlight? So uh, concluding a professional development opportunity. At the end of the professional development, discuss next steps make announcements for the next session and assign homework if appropriate. Encourage participants to continue learning and provide resources for them to do so. You might provide online resources, contact information for presenters who are willing to be ongoing resources and access to accessible training materials. In addition, when appropriate, encourage participants to act based on their learning. Share ideas of steps you have taken and ask them to share their ideas. Finally, ask them to complete an evaluation form to help you improve um, the experience for future participants. Be sure that questions pertaining to accommodations and accessibility are included in the evaluation form. 
Leave these questions relatively open-ended to allow individuals with disabilities to share their experiences and offer insights for continued improvement. So I wanted to highlight this passage for listeners because I think when, you know, the ultimate goal of professional development is for participants to learn. And there are two parts of learning. There's the introduction to the concepts and the ideas. And then there is the practice of those concepts and ideas. And I think this section, you know, when you talk about next steps, when you talk about ideas or examples of how these things have been implemented, and then you encourage them to get creative and think about how can they implement those things, it gets them um, more excited about implementation. I know we've all been to conferences where it's like, oh my goodness, I'm going to take all of this home and and I'm going to implement all of it, right? Um, <laughs> and, and we do, we do some things, but we, we often don't have the time to do it all. But, um, but yeah, just getting people excited to, to take those next steps. And then also important for the um, trainers or the um, the folks who are designing the professional development is to learn, you know, how um, accessible their presentation of the information was and how usable it was, right? And so if we do a, um, a, a survey, and that's so important so that we can learn and improve upon it the next time. Mm -hmm. Yes, I can't um, highlight enough the importance of all of that. So thank you for highlighting it for us and bringing it to our attention. Marcel, your passage is found on page 60 under the subtitle, Professional Development Audiences and Their Needs. Remember that all of those or all these accessibility concepts and tools are in service to actual individuals. If they do not facilitate authentic participation for members of the audience, the professional development is inaccessible Planners may have to decide to postpone or cancel online events or training resources until they are accessible and inform campus departments, marketing offices, and additional administrators about these kinds of hard decisions. To avoid this, always plan for access from conception to delivery of that professional development and consult with accessibility experts and members of the disability community themselves. That sums up how I feel about this topic in a nutshell for me, um, because I always had to fight so hard either for the student or who the employee even at times, the faculty member um, or myself. So I, we all strive to understand this concept. There's so many moving pieces to it at any given time, but if we don't do it on the front end and we're trying to add to the back end, we're gonna fail our audience and or audiences. So that's why this was a very near and dear topic to my heart because um, I understand having a disability myself, how important it is, whether I'm being trained on a new job or I'm going to a training to update information for my certifications that I've, I've had to literally ask it, you know, in the uh, interim or at the end of the presentation, are you gonna make these things accessible? <laughs> you know, are you gonna post them eventually, or am I gonna have to go and print 20 pages off and, and do it myself and so I can understand what you just presented on at any given time? So that that is where I um, really focused in on was that particular paragraph that was very important to me. 
Thank you for sharing your experience too. Uh, I will add to what you highlighted as another person who has disabilities and um, needs to sometimes find myself asking for things to be made accessible. This is sort of a knowing that those in student affairs or ACPA tend to be higher education administrators. When you are in charge of a small staff and one of them has an accessibility need, well, let's just say it's large print and they have to speak up for it every single time. It is wearing because if you have a small staff, we'll say like maybe five people, including you. And that person has been there and we're going on a couple years. It's noticeable that the need in order to participate, it's not a, a made up need. It's not like a desire or a want. It's a need in order to learn. It's very noticeable, the message being sent. And so that's sort of from my own personal experience, something I was thinking of, Marcel, as you were highlighting that and kind of talking about your own experience related to having to ask for that. But also, I think likewise, if you wait until the very end, what you can come up with, the ideas you come up with, seemingly feel tacked on real quick to the end. And um, as instead of being incorporated throughout naturally, like they would be if you started at the beginning and thought, okay, how do I, you know, if we're gonna show this video, do we have the captions on right away or let's just turn them on now so that we don't even have to worry about it versus afterwards saying, hang on, now we gotta restart it. Let me find the button, um, which I've experienced numerous, numerous times. So um, thank you for that. This is our conversation with our authors today related to chapter seven. Before we say goodbye, I'm gonna check in with them to see if there's anything else any of them wanted to highlight about this chapter that hasn't been mentioned yet. Your, um, the uh, comments that you just made, Sarah, made me think of informal uh, professional development or at least um, uh, informal uh, information sharing of uh, employees, both you, Marcel, both uh, touched on that. And it made me think of those um, other ways that uh, people get information. And uh, just as an example, I remember working with a student who was blind, who worked for his college's, um, he did an internship at the college's um, uh, counseling center. And uh, he, uh, came into my office later and said he had discovered that um, in that office, they had a um, tradition or a habit of just putting paper in people's inboxes. This is physical, you know, not email, and with important things to be read. And he didn't even know that was happening until somebody pointed it out. And so he was looking for ways to, you know, scan it and all that. But that started a conversation about all that kind of information sharing, which people just even think about. Um, so, um, so fold it into what our formal uh, chapter about professional development is all that, also that informal um, information sharing and teaching and learning. Yes, and I think that some of those ways of checking sort of your daily habits of how you information share 
can be done in uh, this probably won't surprise anyone as an editor to this monograph if you go through the monograph and you think through how does this chapter this apply chapter to me and what i do and is there anything i need to do better related to the content like the context that's covered in this chapter because we did try to cover what we considered to be the most common contexts in higher education for folks who are administrators of any kind. So, um, you know, there's a campus programming chapter specifically. There's nothing that stops you from taking that campus programming chapter. And if you are someone who doesn't do quite large campus events, but you have a staff that does smaller campus events, it's the same information. It's just reduced in terms of when you read it, if it says all campus, don't read all campus, <laughs> just change it and think about the venue in that case. So, um, and I think there's one on supervision and um, there's there's stuff about in the classroom. And, and at some point in time, if it starts to feel like, oh, I'm knowing this stuff and it's just changing a little bit slightly um, because we're all talking about learning environments. Yeah, that's what I would say. Um, there is a commonality. It's just you got you start to pick up the habit and and you take it with you into that new environment. And it a, the first time you learn something new is always usually the hardest and you struggle with it the most. And then the more you use it, going back to what Tara was saying about putting it into your practice, the more it becomes easier and then it becomes just second nature. And you wonder why everyone else isn't doing it. <laughs> so yes, thank you. Anything else anyone wants to bring up related to your chapter? Well, just um, just the timing of when we were writing this chapter, right? Like we were doing this and then COVID hit. And I think we learned so much from that experience of COVID that we could write a whole new chapter. And so my hope is that you know, someone will read this and um, and then just add to the body of knowledge, right? With with the information that isn't included in this chapter and the new ideas that we learned through that experience. Yes, a hundred percent. I know that we hope that this is just um, what do they call that? Edition one, and that some someone else maybe picks it up and puts out edition two by updating the chapters in the future. Uh, COVID certainly taught us that there are a lot of tools that we all have, vast majority of us have access to that can be quickly, I don't know about easily, but quickly implemented to share information with others. And I'm, we're recording this via one of those tools. So we're using Zoom right now, and this is much more common to use than it was pre-COVID. But yes, I think there's a lot more than just Zoom that have been learned as ways to connect. And it's it's encouraging to hear some of what's going on in the business community, where there's conversations about what has now become expected by employees related to that are potentially healthier for us as people, human beings. Um, you know, the conversations around what does a work day have to look like and what does getting your work done have to look like? I mean, all those questions are being raised. I hear them at least a lot more being talked about in the workplace. 
And I think that those are accessibility questions as well. So it might not be necessarily related to a disability. It could just be related to other responsibilities people have. And in some ways, it's just being respectful of we're all humans in this world, trying to do our best to get it all done, everything we signed up for, <laughs> and um, allowing us the trust to do that is nice. So, yeah. Well, thank you. I think that brings us to the end of this episode. I want to thank Richard, Tara, and Marcel for joining me today to discuss providing accessible professional development, which is chapter seven of the monograph, creating inclusivity while providing accommodations, a practical guide to champion individuals with disabilities on campus. If you haven't yet had a chance to read it, I encourage you to do so. The publication is available for free and can be found at myacpa.org. A link to the publication will also be added to the notes in this podcast. I hope our discussion today was beneficial to you, our listener. As always, thank you for including, thank you for listening to season two, including ability of the Coalition for Disability Talk and Disability podcast. If you enjoy our show, please rate and review us wherever it is that you found this podcast. While you're at it, don't forget to subscribe and be sure to come back next week for discussion about integrating disability into campus programming. Until then, this is your host, Sarah Shopper, and don't forget to include ability. This podcast was created by the Coalition for Disability, ACPA College Student Educators International. It was produced, recorded, and edited by Sarah Shopper. Including ability is season two of the Talk and Disability podcast for the Coalition for Disability.